You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. On a summer afternoon in 1752, as storm clouds gathered over Philadelphia and rain spattered the city, writer, diplomat, inventor, scientist, and all-around polymath Benjamin Franklin did not seek shelter inside as so many others did. Rather, he saw an opportunity to conduct an experiment that he had been planning for some time. He prepared a kite, but rather than a paper kite, this one was a silken handkerchief stretched over crossed sticks, making it more likely to withstand the wind and the rain of the storm. And he attached to the kite a house key. Most Americans are very familiar with this experiment, but in its countless retellings, it has become a historical myth, with many claiming that in conducting it, Benjamin Franklin discovered electricity. In truth, electricity had been a recognized form of energy for more than a thousand years. In fact, numerous scientists had studied the nature and effects of static electricity, going all the way back to 546 BCE when Thales of Miletus produced electricity by rubbing wool against amber. The purpose of Franklin's experiment, rather, was to prove the electrical nature of lightning. This was a popular theory at the time, winning French scientists accolades for their speculation on the topic, based on the observation that lightning appeared to be attracted to spikes or high points a fact about which Franklin himself had formerly been skeptical. The design of his kite experiment, however, clearly demonstrates how much was known about the conduction of electricity. Franklin attached a wire to the top of his kite and made sure that the twine was wet so that the lightning, or electrical fire as he called it, would be conducted from the wire at the kite's tip down to the key at the end of the twine which would collect the charge. And to protect himself from the electricity at the end of the wet twine where the key was tied, he attached another string, this one of silk, which he did his best to keep dry, for he held the other end of it. At the conclusion of his experiment, he was able to charge a rudimentary capacitor called a Leiden jar. He published the details of the experiment, and thus the myth was born. Some other mythical aspects of the experiment have to do with where he stood, with some accounts describing him being in a field 
when in fact he explicitly described standing in a doorway so as to keep his silken tether dry. Other versions have it that he climbed the spire of Christ Church to conduct the experiment. But this is a corruption. In fact, he intended to use the spire on Christ Church for his experiment, but at the time the church had no such steeple. Franklin even financed its construction by organizing a lottery, but it would not be built until a couple years after he went ahead with the experiment using a kite instead of a steeple to reach the height necessary. And lastly, most tellings of the story have it that the key adorned kite was struck by lightning. If that were the case, Benjamin Franklin would very likely have been killed. In fact, the year after, a similar experiment in Russia did end up electrocuting the physicist conducting it. Rather, in Franklin's experiment, the wire collected the ambient electricity in the storm cloud and conducted it to the key. This experiment, which for a long time was referred to as the Philadelphia experiment, really happened and was rather momentous in the study of electricity and meteorological phenomena. But like other real incidents in history, it has gathered myths over time. In contrast, today, the term the Philadelphia experiment is used mostly to refer to another momentous scientific achievement around 200 years later. The difference is this one never really happened. However, it too has evolved into numerous historical myths, including wild conspiracy claims that our government has abducted children for psychic experimentation, opened portals in space-time, and brought actual monsters into our world. This is historical blindness. I'm Nathaniel Lloyd, and I'm realizing at the conclusion of this series that the title Stranger Things Have Happened no longer really works, and we really should call it Stranger Things Never Happened, here in Part 3, The Philadelphia Experiment and The Montauk Project. Before the episode, I want to thank my newest Patreon patron, Lewis. Also, thanks to Jonathan for increasing his pledge amount and giving an additional donation on Venmo. And thank you to my old college buddy, Edwin Lingar, for his recent support. Edwin is a stand-up, genuine guy, and he's running for Washoe County Commissioner in Nevada. If you're voting in Washoe County, I urge you to cast your vote for him, for Edwin Lingar. I really appreciate all my patrons. Those who pledge on Patreon, you get ad-free and exclusive episodes. I always release one minisode a month at bare minimum, but I'm often able to do more than one. For example, after part one of this series, I released an episode about the history of mesmerism and hypnosis, another mind control technique explored by MKUltra. Then after part two, I released a minisode all about the Moscow signal that I mentioned in that episode and its apparent connection to Havana syndrome. Patron feeds also get episodes early, and as mentioned, their episodes aren't interrupted by advertisements or Patreon pitches like this. So visit patreon.com slash historical blindness and support the show, or you can support the show by making a one-time donation 
at historicalblindness.com donate or at the PayPal link in the show notes or on Venmo at historicalblindness. Now, on with the episode. Welcome to Historical Blindness, and welcome to the 100th episode of the podcast. Technically, there are something like 130 episodes in the feed, including blind spots that I categorized as bonus episodes. And of course, there are far more than that in the Patreon feed, where all the bonus minisodes go these days, exclusively for patron enjoyment. But I noticed that according to the numbering of episodes not marked as bonus content, this is the hundredth, and we might as well celebrate it as a milestone. Certainly, I think it's a worthy topic to mark the occasion, having to do with a hoax that many continue to believe was a genuine historical event. I described this series as an exploration of the historical and pseudo-historical basis of the Netflix series Stranger Things. And it is here that we veer into the decidedly pseudo-historical. Some may protest that the topics I've been covering, MK ultra-human experimentation and CIA-sponsored studies of anomalous mental phenomena, were not the actual basis of the series. Rather, the creators of Stranger Things were inspired not by history, but by 80s science fiction. And this is certainly the case. One of the great pleasures of watching the series is in identifying each bit of homage that they've woven into it. But we can see that one of the biggest influences on the show, Stephen King's Firestarter, was itself influenced by the intelligence projects I've been discussing. The novel clearly references MK Ultra drug trials, as well as CIA efforts to develop a psychic asset in its premise about a scientific intelligence agency that gives test subjects psychic powers by dosing them with a psychoactive drug. Certainly the first season of Stranger Things, which has government agents chasing after a little girl with psychokinetic powers, owes much to King's novel and its film adaptation. However, it has been reported that the show's creators certainly were inspired by the real-life urban legend of the Montauk Project, which I will be discussing in this episode. The original name of the series was actually Montauk, and a couple of years after the series premiere, the creators were sued for plagiarism by a man who claimed to have pitched them a feature film called The Montauk Project, about an abducted child secret experiments in a military installation, and an interdimensional monster. Eventually, the lawsuit was withdrawn, either because the case was weak or because the plaintiff was paid handsomely to drop the charges. Regardless, these facts are enough to confirm that the story of the Montauk Project, a wild and thoroughly debunked tale that continues to be believed by many fringe researchers and paranormal conspiracy theorists, was the principal basis for the show Stranger Things. However, before we can even begin to approach the story of the Montauk Project, we must first examine the legend of the Philadelphia Experiment. 
which would become the bedrock upon which the later legend was built. The legend began in 1952, when Morris K. Jessup, a UFO researcher, received a letter from someone calling himself Carlos Allende, who took issue with Jessup's urging of legislators to fund research aimed at completing Einstein's unified field theory as a means of developing anti-gravity propulsion and advancing space travel technology. Over the next year, Jessup received more than 50 letters from Allende, who claimed that, contrary to common knowledge, Albert Einstein actually had completed his unified field theory and had used it while working with the Navy on a top-secret experiment. For any other layperson like myself, the unified field theory was the idea that all the forces of nature specifically the field equations of relativistic gravitation and electromagnetism, must be connected and thus should be describable with a single integrated theory. This notion obsessed Einstein, who indicated in a 1923 Nobel lecture that he, quote, cannot rest content with the assumption that there exist two distinct fields totally independent of each other by their nature, end quote. He worked on unification for the last 30 years of his life, even poring over his notes on his deathbed, but he never achieved a working theory. Some say this is because he was simply ahead of his time, as back then, only two subatomic particles were known, whereas now we've discovered several others. Also, only the two fundamental forces of nature he was trying to unify were recognized, but now we recognize two others the so-called strong and weak nuclear forces at work inside of atoms. Others will say that Einstein was simply not keeping up with the vanguard of physics in his day because he had rejected quantum mechanics, or they will say he had simply strayed too far from physical reality in his mathematical theories, which more and more had to involve theoretical dimensions in order to work. Today, it's thought that string theory which likewise requires the existence of numerous dimensions, may eventually lead to the theory of everything that Einstein sought, though string theorists too have been criticized for straying too far from physical reality and not producing testable theories. However, according to Morris K. Jessup's mysterious correspondent, Carlos Allende, Einstein actually did complete his unified theory and tested it at a naval shipyard in Philadelphia in 1943, when he managed to make a naval destroyer, the USS Eldridge, disappear. According to Allende, as part of the war effort, Einstein was applying his unified theory in an effort to make the warship invisible. But as an unforeseen result of the experiment, the destroyer was teleported to Norfolk, Virginia and back again. Allende knew about this because he had witnessed it. He had been a merchant marine aboard a shipping vessel at the time, and he had seen strange equipment brought aboard the Eldridge, such as transmitters and generators, as well as what appeared to be a Tesla coil that was wrapped around the entire vessel. Before the ship disappeared, 
He claimed to have seen it become enveloped in a bright green haze. Over the course of his many letters, Allende described the experiment in greater detail, explaining that sailors aboard the Eldridge became disoriented, that when the vessel reappeared in Norfolk, some crew members' bodies had physically fused with the solid matter of the ship's bulkheads, and that some had disappeared entirely. In the spring of 1957, the year after Jessup had received the increasingly strange letters from Allende, agents from the Office of Naval Research contacted him. They had in their possession a volume of Jessup's 1955 book, The Case for the UFO, that had been anonymously sent to them, annotated by what appeared to be three different people using different colored ink. Something in the annotations which implied knowledge about the propulsion technology of UFOs and suggested Jessup was too close to figuring out the truth, had interested the agents. And of course, this helps fuel conspiracy theories about official cover-ups. When Jessup read the annotations, he found their technical jargon similar to that of Allende and showed the officers Allende's letters. According to the story, these naval investigators went to the Pennsylvania return address that appeared on the letters, but found only an abandoned farmhouse. Afterward, the Navy seems to have lost interest, or maybe they had never been all that interested at all. But Morris K. Jessup grew more and more obsessed. The legend almost died with him, however, when Jessup committed suicide in 1959 without publishing anything about the Philadelphia experiment. However, Allende would not let it die. He began writing further letters to UFO researcher Jacques Vallée almost a decade later, and word of the strange story spread through the UFO researcher community. In 1968, a book was published, and suddenly the Allende letters and copies of the annotated Jessup book called the Vero edition, after the company that made 127 reproductions of it, became nearly mythical among UFO researchers. These conspiracy theorists variously speculate that Jessup was actually murdered, even though there is evidence of his psychological distress before his suicide, resulting from a failed marriage and poor health after an automobile accident, and that Carlos Allende who remained in hiding for his entire life, posting letters from various locations in America and Mexico, was actually an extraterrestrial. Then in 1979, the story of the Philadelphia experiment really reached prominence in the public imagination when a widely read paranormal writer, who had previously popularized the idea of the Bermuda Triangle, teamed up with UFO researcher Bill Moore to write a book about it. Listeners of the show should recognize those names, as Moore and Berlitz were the duo who later popularized the legend about the Roswell incident, and Moore would eventually be made a pawn in the UFO disinformation games of Rick Doty, helping to torment Paul Benowitz and propagate the hoax Majestic 12 documents. If you don't know what I'm talking about, I invite you to listen to my three-part series UFO Disinfo, released last year around this time. 
Moore, who also apparently corresponded with the mysterious Carlos Allende, expanded on the mythology. The experiment was codenamed Project Rainbow, Berlitz and Moore wrote, and the research into invisibility may have applied Einstein's unified field theory, but Einstein's theory had been completed by Townsend Brown, an inventor of questionable background and character who claimed to have developed in the 1920s an anti-gravity thrust technology called the Beefield-Brown effect that today is recognized as a misunderstanding of the ionic or coronal wind phenomenon. Furthermore, according to Berlitz and Moore, the application of this unified field technology toward invisibility was developed by mathematician and Manhattan Project collaborator John von Neumann. Of course, exactly how Townsend's quote-unquote electrogravitation might have produced invisibility, let alone achieved teleportation, is unsurprisingly not exceedingly clear. Carlos Allende's story was, of course, dubious from the start. For example, if he had seen the ship disappear and reappear in Philadelphia, how did he know where it had teleported to? And why was there no record of the event from other witnesses? Even if no others on Allende's ship had seen it, the sudden disappearance of a destroyer, which would have displaced around 2,000 tons of water, would have been noticed simply because of the resulting turmoil in the waters, as it would have created massive waves that would have crashed through the naval shipyard. In fact, ship logs and naval records indicate that the ship may not have even been in Philadelphia in October 1943, and in 1999, sailors who had served on the Eldridge reunited and said the ship had never docked there. And in 1994, in an article in the Journal of Scientific Exploration, UFO researcher Jacques Vallée writes about an interview he conducted with one Edward Dudgeon, who had been a sailor aboard the USS Ingstrom, which had been docked at the Philadelphia Naval Shipyard in October 1943. Dudgeon revealed rational explanations for everything Carlos Allende might have observed if he really were there watching the strange activities on the destroyers in the Navy Yard at the time. They had indeed been loading unusual high-tech equipment onto destroyers that night. These included new sonar devices, as well as new depth charge launchers, and rather than being wrapped in Tesla coils, they were being wrapped in high-voltage cables to alter the ship's magnetic signatures, making them more difficult for magnetic torpedoes to target. It was a process known as degaussing, and it sometimes produced the smell of ozone, as Allende described. It's even possible that Allende may have overheard a sailor saying something about how it would make them invisible, not to the naked eye, or even to radar, but to torpedoes. As for the green haze, this was a common enough occurrence at sea, a weather phenomenon called St. Elmo's Fire caused by electrical discharge, which we might assume to have been pronounced by the degaussing process. And Dudgeon even offered an explanation for the disappearance of whatever ship Allende had seen and believed was the Eldridge, as well as its appearance in Norfolk and reappearance at Philadelphia in too short a time for such a journey. According to Dudgeon, 
who actually claimed the Eldridge was there in Philadelphia, which does conflict with other reports. A destroyer leaving the Philadelphia shipyard one night, appearing in Norfolk shortly thereafter, and then reappearing back in Philadelphia would have seemed impossible to a merchant marine, as their ships would have to take a two-day trip to the harbor entrance. But the destroyers were able to take the Chesapeake-Delaware Canal, an inland channel that would make such a short trip possible and necessary as Norfolk was where such ships were loaded with ammunition. Therefore, it is somewhat understandable that such a tall tale might be told by a merchant marine who saw the destroyers loaded up with secret anti-submarine technology and witnessed the unusual and definitely classified process of degaussing the ships, and who may have seen the ships engulfed in a strange kind of green fire during the process and who later that evening noticed a ship had departed but the next morning saw it was present again, and perhaps even later heard through the grapevine that the same ship had been at Norfolk in the middle of the night, a round trip that would have seemed to him impossible to complete in so short a time if he were unaware of the shortcut naval warships were taking between the two navy yards. It is impossible, though, to give Allende the benefit of the doubt and suggest he may have actually been there and seen something that he honestly mistook for a ship teleporting. From the beginning, in his correspondence with Jessup, there was evidence that he was perpetrating a hoax. How, for example, could a merchant marine aboard a separate ship have even known all the particulars he claimed to know, down to Einstein's involvement and his secret completion of the unified field theory? And what else but an elaborate hoax could explain his annotation of Jessup's book, in which he pretended to be three different people, or rather beings, engaged in a conversation in the margins about mere humans and their inability to grasp the explanations of various paranormal phenomena. The only rational alternative to it being a hoax is it being the product of mental illness. In 1969, though, Carlos Allende, or a man claiming to be him, appeared at the Arizona office of APRO, the Aerial Phenomena Research Organization, and confessed that his letters and annotations in the Vero edition of Jessup's book had been a hoax. Bill Moore and Charles Berlitz chose not to believe this, though, and Allende later recanted. However, a year after the Berlitz-Moore book, Carlos Allende was discredited once and for all. In 1980, researcher Robert German, who happened to live in the Pennsylvania town Allende had given in his return address, decided to look into it. Apparently, little serious research had been done to track down Allende, as the address previously said to have been a vacant farmhouse was not vacant at all, and German was pretty easily able to locate the estranged parents and siblings of Carlos Allende, whose real name, it turned out, was Carl Allen. In fact, it also turned out he knew the man's father pretty well, and the family was only too willing to share stories about the eccentric drifter he had grown up to be, showing German all the letters Carl had sent home over the years, in which he bragged about being the author of books 
that he had merely scribbled in, including not just Jessup's book, but Berlitz and Moore's as well. The portrait that emerged from German's interviews was of a mischief-maker possessed of a gifted intellect. According to the Allen family, Carl had squandered his potential and had nothing to show for his life but a widely believed urban legend. That legacy, however, continued on strong even after his discrediting in 1980, with a feature film dramatizing the story of the Philadelphia Experiment in 1984, executive produced by horror master John Carpenter, whose work, including his self-composed synth scores and the 1982 classic The Thing, has been paid extensive homage by the series Stranger Things. Indeed, this film adaptation of Berlitz and Moore's book seems to have gone on to inspire the next clever fabricators of urban legend who came along. Or rather, if they are to be believed, the movie just jogged their erased memories. Now for a brief intermission. What really happened on the unsinkable Titanic? What made the 1904 St. Louis Marathon the strangest event in Olympic history? Whatever became of missing boy Bobby Dunbar? And who was the child who returned in his place? If these questions interest you, check out the History Uncovered podcast, brought to you by the digital publisher of All That's Interesting. History Uncovered explores the strange and obscure parts of history that you definitely didn't learn about in school. Hosted by the writers and editors of All That's Interesting, the show covers a wide variety of topics, ranging from the forgotten media spectacle of cave explorer Floyd Collins's death, to the disappearance and possible cannibalization of Michael Rockefeller, to the true story that inspired The Exorcist. With more than 100 episodes, you're bound to find that they've covered a topic that's especially interesting to you. And each month, they produce a special History Happy Hour episode, examining recent news in the fields of world history and archaeology, and commemorating important historical anniversaries. Come explore the uncharted corners of the natural world and the world past by listening to History Uncovered, wherever you get your podcasts. Do you find yourself captivated by the inexplicable, entranced by enigmas, and tantalized by the unknown? We are Shane and Josh Waters, brothers who will weave you through tales that have mystified us for years. From haunted hotels to inexplicable disappearances, Our episodes offer you a panoramic view of the world's greatest mysteries, leaving no stone unturned, no clue unnoticed. With a gripping narrative, we invite you to join us on a journey into realms of the unexplained. We're unraveling the mysteries that have perplexed humanity for ages. So, armchair detectives, curious minds, and seekers of the strange, it's time to put on your headphones and dim the lights. Dive into the uncanny world of the Mystery Inc. podcast and prepare for a journey into the unknown that you'll never forget. And remember, some mysteries are better left unsolved, but not unexplored. 
Can you set the stage a little bit so people understand what happened? In 1969, 14 black student athletes were kicked off their university's American football team for planning a show of support against racism. We were really protesting our treatment on the field. Amazing Sports Stories from the BBC World Service tells their story. We became brothers that day when you did that to us. We made a change. Fighting for what we deserve. Search for Amazing Sports Stories wherever you get your BBC podcasts. Now, back to the show. Around 1988, a videotape called The Truth About the Philadelphia Experiment began circulating in ufology and fringe belief circles. The video featured three men talking to a small audience in a private Long Island residence while they shared a slideshow projected onto a bedsheet. Underground tapes like these sold for 20 to 30 bucks a pop and were copied and shared among like-minded conspiracy theorists who felt like such videos made them privy to secrets of which the sheeple were blissfully unaware. And it was through such independently produced and disseminated media that misinformation and hoaxes were spread before the advent of the modern internet in the 1990s. In the video, the three men, Preston Nichols, Duncan Cameron, and Al Bielik spoke about how they had recovered long-repressed memories about their involvement with outlandish secret government experiments after viewing the film The Philadelphia Experiment. Preston Nichols claimed that he had been working in the 70s and 80s as a microwave engineer on Long Island, but began moonlighting at nearby Montauk Air Base, ostensibly to work on their radar equipment but he had recovered memories, he said, of his involvement with a series of bizarre experiments in an underground bunker at Camp Hero, a military installation that was, at the time, officially abandoned. According to the mythos, John von Neumann, who Berlitz and Moore had claimed was instrumental in the development of the technology used in the Philadelphia experiment, had gone on to further develop the electrogravitic field technology and apply it to some completely different purposes. Using technology contributed by Nikola Tesla for the Philadelphia experiment, von Neumann supposedly designed a chair that amplified and relayed human thoughts to a computer, which through some hocus-pocus field technology then materialized that thought into reality. They could think of a can of beer and then it would appear so real they could drink it. What does this have to do with the Philadelphia Project, you may be asking? Well, so the story goes. The participants used this technology that brought into reality whatever the person in the chair thought about in conjunction with weather manipulation technology that allowed the opening of vortices to open wormholes through space and time. Exactly 40 years after the Philadelphia experiment, they opened one such wormhole and became linked to the field 
that had teleported the Eldridge from Philadelphia to Norfolk and back. Enter Al Bielik and Duncan Cameron, who claimed to be sailors aboard the Eldridge, who leapt overboard during the experiment and landed in Camp Hero 40 years in the future. Through an astonishing coincidence, Bielik and Cameron were not just any sailors. Bielik was a brilliant scientist engineer who had been closely involved with the technical aspects of the Philadelphia experiment, so he went on to work at Montauk in the 1980s, and Cameron just so happened to be a gifted psychic, making him the perfect operator of the Montauk chair. All three of them claimed to have only recently remembered these events after having seen the 1984 film because they'd had their memories wiped by CIA brainwashing techniques. This is perhaps the least outlandish aspect of their story, but as we saw in part one of this series, it too is hard to credit since the CIA failed to ever develop any such targeted amnesia effects. But however convoluted and unbelievable the story already sounds, strap in, because it only gets more tortuous and preposterous from here. Kingdom of Nye. This is Coast to Coast AM with Art Bell on the CBC Radio Network. Well, good morning. Yes, this is it. Al Bielik is here. He's all the way out in Atlanta, Georgia, but that doesn't make any difference. Time and space, we just zip right through it to satellites to come to you, and he's got quite a story to tell. It is the story of the Philadelphia Experiment, an effort to get an entire ship to disappear, which they did. Good morning, Al. Good morning. Thanks for joining us at this weird hour. That was really nice of you. All right, we're up to the point of actually telling what happened, I guess. So, right. what did happen? Okay, with the test of the Brooklyn Navy, I was a tender, and I might point out there was very important no personnel on board. In the 1990s, terrestrial radio became a major channel for the spread of such hoaxes and conspiracy claims, and the biggest purveyor was Art Bell host of Coast to Coast. Al Bielik and Preston Nichols appeared numerous times on Art Bell's program to promote their claims and, of course, to sell copies of their tape or of the series of books co-authored by one Peter Moon that Nichols began to self-publish in 1992. Over the course of these retellings, as the Montauk mythos was revealed or coalesced or evolved or was sporadically improvised, however you want to look at it, it grew more and more sensational. Al Bielik claimed to be a man out of time whose identity had been rewritten. He was actually Ed Cameron, he said, and Duncan was his brother. But over the course of their time travel experiments at Montauk, he had gone back and forth in time and had even been age-regressed into a one-year-old's body to have his identity erased, which seems 
far too elaborate a plan to get rid of him when the shadowy group running the Montauk project could have just had him killed. It conveniently accounts, however, for there being no record of either Cameron on the Eldritch, and also explains why there is no evidence that he, Al Bielek, had ever earned the advanced degrees in science and engineering he claimed to possess. As for who that shadowy Montauk group was, as with much of the story, this changed over time. It was a secret government operation, a la MKUltra, involving Nazi scientists recruited via Operation Paperclip, performing experiments on psychic test subjects. Or rather, it was the project of a secret Nazi order that had survived the fall of the Third Reich and, funded by Nazi gold, sought to bring the Reich back through manipulation of the timeline. But then again, it used technology not just developed by Tesla and Einstein, but by extraterrestrials who had signed a secret treaty with the U.S. government. The projects undertaken with the teleportation and time travel technology developed were equally wide-ranging and fantastical. For example, they claimed to have teleported to a facility beneath the pyramids on Mars in order to deactivate a defense grid that prevented aliens from entering the solar system, and they described a plot to go back in time, assassinate Jesus Christ with a pistol, steal his blood, clone it, transfuse it into Duncan Cameron, and then have him arrive on a flying saucer to Earth, the idea being that when scientists tested his DNA against traces on the Turin Shroud, they would have successfully faked the Second Coming. As with much of the mythos, these supposedly brilliant scientists seem to lack a fundamental grasp of much of the technical claims they make. For example, a blood transfusion does not change one's DNA. But we will look at the plausibility and logical flaws involved with their story shortly. To conclude, we should point out the parts of their meandering mythology that seem to have inspired Stranger Things. According to the books, the Nazis or aliens or Nazi aliens behind the project began abducting children in the 1970s to experiment on them, torturing them, and either uncovering their innate psychic abilities or cultivating them. Finally, in an act of resistance to the project, Belak's psychic brother Duncan used the thought-form-generating chair to bring a monster into being. And as this monster rampaged through Camp Hero, they ended up having to destroy the lab's equipment to make it dematerialize, resulting in the end of the Montauk project. Here we see all the seeds of the Netflix series Stranger Things, from missing children to experiments on abducted psychic children, to the opening of portals with the power of the mind and the drawing of a monster into our reality. But as we will see, and as you should already be able to discern, the show was not based on anything real. It was inspired by a work of fiction that is even more far-fetched than the show is, and that only masqueraded as a true story.
As I started to write this section of the episode, which the entire series has built up to, it occurred to me, do I really need to debunk so absurdly ridiculous a conspiracy claim? Is it not enough to stick my thumb towards some of the most outrageous claims these people have made and just shrug? It feels embarrassing to even dignify the story of the Montauk Project by putting effort into disproving it, like it's beneath me. However, if I were to share it without demonstrating its clear falsehood, I would be engaging in the same kind of media amplification that allows hoaxes like these to spread and achieve the status of legend. So here we go. It should be enough to point out that the burden of proof is on those making the claims, and as these are extraordinary claims, according to the Sagan standard, they require extraordinary evidence, but none has ever been provided. Oh, it's been promised, though. For the remainder of his life, until his death in 2007, Al Bielek assured the public that he was working on a definitive book that would demystify the science behind all the experiments he claimed to have been involved with. But unsurprisingly, this world-shattering treatise on teleportation and time travel never appeared, nor is there any indication that he ever penned an academic article that he attempted to get published in a scholarly journal, or that he ever made an effort to demonstrate any of his claims to a bona fide scientist. Oh, but he sure made the time to co-author a book on UFO conspiracies with paranormal writer Brad Steiger. Likewise, when asked in an interview why Preston Nichols didn't publish anything regarding the secret scientific advancements he was always on about being privy to, he hand-waved the question by saying there was no market or audience for that. I'll just point out first, that there would obviously be a massive market for such a scientific breakthrough, including any number of private corporations that would jump at the chance to patent such technology. And second, Nichols was tacitly confessing here that he was in the business of promoting paranormal conspiracy theory, because there is an audience and market for that. As for the credibility of the men, consider Bielik who has been caught in errors both logical and technical, and then simply changes his story. Even if you were to believe his claim that his true identity was erased, along with evidence of his higher learning, one fundamental lie about his background has been discovered. He claimed to have never heard of the Philadelphia experiment before seeing the film and recovering his memories. But UFO researchers have revealed that they had known Bielik since the early 1960s and known him to be obsessed with UFOs and with the Philadelphia Experiment, even owning and sharing a copy of the annotated Vero edition of Morris Jessup's The Case for the UFO, something Bielik himself eventually conceded. So it's pretty clear that his entire story is founded on a fundamental lie. As for Preston Nichols, discrediting him takes us to darker places. After the publication of Nichols' books, when he would speak about Montauk on the paranormal circuit, men began to approach him, saying they thought maybe they had been Montauk boys and had their memory erased. Preston encouraged them in their beliefs, meeting with them privately to quote-unquote deprogram them 
of their falsified memories. Numerous participants in these deprogramming sessions, including Nichols himself, describe how he touched the subjects' bodies with his hands in something like the mesmeric stroking I recently described in my Blind Spot exclusive minisode on mesmerism and hypnosis. But more than that, it has been established that Preston Nichols convinced these men that in order to deprogram them, he had to masturbate them while applying some kind of electromagnetic radiation, a well-known pseudoscientific alternative medicine called radionics. At the end of this bizarre journey, then, it becomes strikingly clear that these men perpetrated an elaborate hoax to make money off of the famously credulous UFO conspiracy theorist community. And at least one of them, Preston Nichols, used his mystique to take sexual advantage of numerous men. So there we have it, the dark heart of the source material for the Netflix series Stranger Things. I greatly enjoy the show, and I'll say that I'm far better able to suspend my disbelief while watching it than I am while reading about the Montauk Project. It's very strange to think that it was likely inspired by this outlandish conspiracy claim that has been used to molest its adherents. So, after all, we might say that the series Stranger Things is not based on any real history, since the elements of real history it uses were present in the fiction that inspired it, and the story of the Montauk Project is also fiction. Indeed, the books that established and expanded the Montauk mythos, including those written by Preston Nichols and Peter Moon, as well as later books written only by Peter Moon, and books written by Stuart Swerdlow, one supposed Montauk boy who underwent the handsy deprogramming of Preston Nichols and then claimed to have recovered his memories about Montauk. All of them are published by Sky Books, Peter Moon's publishing house, and all of them are officially categorized as fiction, despite their claims to authenticity. In fact, the Sky Books slogan is where science fiction meets reality. However, if you visit their website, you'll be directed to their sister website, the Time Travel Education Center. And if you dig in there, you'll feel like you stumbled on the web presence of a cult. And that's essentially what it is. In fact, it has quite a lot in common with that other more famous conspiracy-addled internet-based cult, QAnon. Like it, the Montauk cult has become a breeding ground for baseless conspiracy delusion. QAnon's habit of trying to integrate all conspiracy theories has been remarked on before, including by myself in my series on Illuminati conspiracy claims. Like them, Preston Nichols, Peter Moon, and Stuart Swerdlow have brought every conceivable conspiracy theory into the fold, managing to weave in legendary artifacts like the Ark of the Covenant, the Holy Grail, and the Spear of Destiny, and enigmatic figures like John Dee, L. Ron Hubbard, Alistair Crowley, and Jack Parsons. 
Perhaps unsurprisingly, one talking point of QAnon was being spread by Stuart Swerdlow long before the purported revelations of Q, as Swerdlow was known to claim that the Montauk boys were tortured in order to extract that sweet adrenochrome from their pineal glands. Never mind that adrenochrome is derived from the adrenal glands, which are nowhere near the pineal gland. One wonders if Al Bielik ever would have made such an elementary error as this. Really, this is representative of the general devolution of hoaxery that we see today. Whereas 30 years ago, one had to be a clever and convincing storyteller capable of spinning an intricate yarn and fire-hosing technobabble on live radio. Today, we have conspiracy influencers like Canada's QAnon queen, Romana Didulo, who just uploads videos in which she claims to be, quote, the only visible leader on the planet, end quote, suppressed by, who else, pedophile globalists, and she still finds dupes to eat it up, turning their sometimes violent ire on whoever she targets, be it healthcare workers for administering vaccines or police for enforcing business closures and masking. Honestly, it's this nauseating reality today that makes me so nostalgic for my childhood in the 1980s and for stories like Stranger Things, in which an innocent but savvy group of kids overcome the machinations of bumbling but no less nefarious adults. Thanks for listening to Historical Blindness. As always, thanks go out to my partner patrons, Diane, Robert, Joe, Devlin, Jessica, Fred from Colorado, Keep Colorado an Abortion Access Haven with LGBTQ Legal Protection, Robin, Mateo, Emily, Katie, Isabella, Terry, Rebecca, Don, Eunice, Juliet, Jonathan, Joshua, Logan, Lily, Kyle, and Sean Munger. Again, find The Sun Thief by Sean Munger on Amazon and check out his YouTube videos on the JFK assassination. Thanks to all my partner patrons, who I promise to never lay hands on in my efforts to deprogram. This podcast is part of the Airwave Media Podcast Network. Visit airwavemedia.com to listen and subscribe to their other fine shows, like I Know What Scares You, in which experts find rational explanations for the paranormal experiences of listeners, and the Unbiased Science podcast, in which an immunologist and public health expert take on all brands of quackery. All synthwave music heard on this episode is by Carl Casey of White Bat Audio. Additional music from Kevin McLeod. Music on this episode is licensed under a Creative Commons Attribution License. Check out the show notes for a list of the tracks used. Until next time, remember, no matter how smart someone may sound when they try to overawe you with technical jargon, 
recognizing you're no expert should remind you that you're also in no position to judge how much of their jargon is happy horse shit. If the gist of it sounds too amazing for it to be news to you, ask them to give you all the technical details in writing so you can run it by a legitimate scientist and see if they backpedal and stammer out excuses not to.